Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. With our services being on Saturdays, this is always a bit of a tricky service. Um, I love being able to be a little more creative with it, but we're kind of on Holy Saturday. We're in between Good Friday and Easter. So what we've decided to do is to blend some Good Friday elements with Easter celebration elements and uh, bring it together into one service. But first, let's continue to worship in prayer, if you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're here tonight because of you. We're here tonight to remember you and to worship you. And I can't thank you enough for your life that you lived and for the work that you accomplished on our behalf on the cross so that we could have our lives transformed and that we could be restored into a right relationship with you. God, thank you for who you are and for loving us so incredibly much. I ask that tonight that we, we not only remember the life that you lived, but the price that you paid. And God, I pray that we meet with you, that we encounter you, and that we leave here changed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with our kids and their kids' programs, and may they too encounter and experience you in ways that they can comprehend. So God, thank you for your love. Amen. So it's easy to get caught up in the celebration of Easter and the gospel, and rightly so. But we have to realize that the resurrection only took place and only happened because of Jesus on the cross. We can't have a triumphant Christ without the cross, and the resurrection doesn't take away the scars from the crucifixion. And I know for some of us, uh, it might be hard to lean into this side of thinking about Jesus on the cross. But focusing on the cross gives meaning to the empty tomb. So scripture tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, he said seven phrases or seven words that not only reinforce his earthly ministry, but give us further insight into his character, into who he is. So for the first half of our service, we're going to take a closer look at four of these last seven words to help us better understand the true cost of Jesus on the cross and to help us prepare to celebrate the resurrection. So I should have warned you guys a bit earlier than this, I'm realizing, but there's a nail on each of your chairs. If you haven't found it yet, you might want to check. But it's there to help us to reflect upon the work of Jesus. And there's a curious thing about the nails. It's because the Gospels actually don't refer to the nails. It's Paul who actually explains the purpose of the nails as he writes in Colossians 2.14. God made you alive with Christ and forgave all the things you had done wrong. He destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. The picture that Paul paints here is that Jesus took the list of my sins, your sins, and he nailed it to the cross. Out of his love for us, he chose the nails. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Praying for one's torturers is not human. And that seems obvious enough. A person can hardly be other-centered to loved ones when we have headaches Never mind 
being so to their enemies when they're slowly asphyxiating under the weight of their own crucified body. But let's not miss the point. This isn't about how we too should act in a similar situation. What Jesus demonstrates on the cross is not who we should be, but rather the natural outflow of who he is. This word of forgiveness that Jesus speaks flows out of his racked body as unstoppably as the blood and water that flows from his pierced side. Forgiveness flows from who God is. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? A son desperately cries out for his father and receives no response. This was the worst part, not the beating or the grueling journey to the hill, not the humiliation from the crown of thorns or the excruciating pain of nails driven into his hands and feet. This complete separation from his father was the worst part. And it's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wrought with anguish, praise, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. He would become the embodiment of our sin, something that a holy and perfect God cannot be in the presence of. But Jesus also prays, not my will, but yours be done. And so on the cross, we hear the heart-wrenching cry, rise from a despairing child looking for his father. But there's more happening here than we might initially realize. To the Jewish crowd, this lament sounds familiar. The words Jesus uses come from the opening verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you, been, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? As the Psalms were a common songbook during those times, any faithful Jew would have recognized these lines. The song goes on to describe the suffering of a man scorned and despised by people. But as the psalmist continues to write, despair shifts to a proclamation of God's faithfulness. Verse 22 and 24 of the psalm read, You answered me. I will proclaim your name, for he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. Christ expressed his agony in words that everyone would know, perhaps because he knew that the people would remember that the song ends in a very different way than how it began. As Jesus speaks through the scriptures, he tells us, fear not, for this isn't the way it ends. I'm thirsty. The theme of thirsting appears throughout the scriptures. In particular, this stands out in the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Here, Jesus' desire for this woman's liberty reaches out to encompass the thirst of her own deepest longings. Here, Jesus offers her living water. This exchange of words is one that turns thirst into joy and into celebration. But all of this only heightens our sense of horror and awe at the thought of Jesus himself being thirsty. Had the water of life failed? He saved others. Could he not save himself? This is how Jesus must do what only he can do. 
He must come to the place where everyone else is, the place of thirst, shame, and death. Christ's deepest thirst is for us, for our redemption, for our flourishing, for our joy, for our deepest thirst to be satisfied in him. When we hear Jesus say that he's thirsty, we come to understand that he who is the living water is thirsty for the end of our thirst. It's done. Complete. It is finished. Often when we hear these final words of Jesus recounted, it's translated in this way, finished. It could be interpreted as an admission of defeat, as giving up. However, the word here in Greek is the same word God used at the end of creation in the Genesis account. After creating for six days, after molding out of nothingness the mountains, the seas, the cosmos, and every creature under the sun. After he brought into being Adam and Eve, God says, it's done, complete. It's not an ending, but rather a declaration that new life, a new story, has just begun. In a similar way, God's son, bloodied and bruised, taking his last breath, gazed down upon creation from the height of a cross and declared, it's done, complete. Jesus performs the most radical act of love. He bears our guilt, our shame, our failure. He takes it and he nails it to a cross and declares over us, it's done, complete. And with these words, Jesus offers up his spirit, and what seems like an ending is in reality a new beginning. New life, a new story has just begun. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So at this time, I'm going to, going to invite you to come participate in communion and to remember the work of Jesus. And as you come forward, I invite you to lay your nail in the basket up at the front. For on him, every sin was laid. Jesus took our sins to the cross. Jesus chose the nails out of his love for you and for me. It is finished. And the sinless one came and took our sins on himself and went to an ugly cross and died there amid blood and, and, and swarming flies and sweat and tears and grief. And then God raised him the third day, for it was not possible for death to hold him. If he's alive, then you've got to do something about him. If he is alive, then he's on my conscience till I've done something about him. And that he is alive, is proved by the downcoming of the Holy Ghost to carry the evidence straight to the consciences of men. Thank God he lives. Thank God that the, the, the fight is over, the battle won, the victory of life is won. Thank God.
a seat. Jesus is alive. In Matthew's gospel, we see Mary Magdalene and some other women coming to the tomb where they had laid Jesus, only to encounter an angel and be told, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here because he's been raised from the dead just as he said. This is Easter, a time when we come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the victory over sin, the victory over shame, the victory over death. And as the women ran to tell the disciples, full of fear and excitement, their hearts pounding, could this be true? Jesus met them and greeted them. They came and grabbed his feet and worshipped him. This is Easter, when Jesus meets us where we are and surprises us with who he is. In its fullness, Easter is actually a season. It's been called Easter Tide. It's a 50-day period from Easter Sunday, where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, to Pentecost Sunday, which marks the coming of the Holy Spirit, or as A.W. Tozer put it, the downcoming of the Holy Ghost. You see, in the first chapter of Acts, it tells us that Jesus meets with his disciples over the course of 40 days. This isn't just a one-time thing and a hallucination that they might be dreaming. He's meeting with them over a period of 40 days, and he's speaking with them about the kingdom of God. And he's doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the resurrection of Jesus, we have God's new creation, his new kingdom exploding in the midst of the old with a renewing, recreating, and resurrection power. And then it goes on to say in Acts 1 verse 4, while they were eating together, while Jesus is physically eating with them after his resurrection, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's new creation continues to emerge in his people, the church. We have been given resurrection power. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, not only to convict us, but to empower us to live Christ-centered and hope-filled lives in the midst of of a hopeless world. We have the presence of the resurrected Jesus enabling us to live a new life now. We have his spirit. We have the presence and power of Jesus in us that spoke the world into existence, that flooded the earth, that parted the Red Sea, that empowered Jesus to preach, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. We have the power to overcome Satan, sin, and death. This is what the gospel is, and this is what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just bring about forgiveness of sins and save us from hell. As one of my youth leaders used to refer to it as fire insurance. The gospel of Jesus empowers us to live a whole new life today by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So what does this mean for us? It means that we can stop, stop striving to, to live life on our own, to try and measure up to this sense of perfection. We're set free from Satan's lies that we're not good enough, 
Jesus sets us free. It means we're set free from spiritual death and we're made alive in Christ. It means we're set free from guilt and shame and can move forward in new life with Christ. It means we're set free to be reconciled with him and with each other. And it means that even though our current bodies may fail and die, we will be given glorified resurrection bodies that will live eternally. And the most amazing part of this is that it's a gift received through faith, so none of us can boast. We receive it all by grace through faith. And this can be one of the hardest aspects, I think, for us to actually get, to get our heads around and to fully grasp, because while it sounds nice on the surface, I think our gut response is, but surely I've got to do something. And in fact, some people asked Jesus the same thing in John's gospel. What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So what do I do now? Your job is to believe. Begins by acknowledging and believing in Jesus and who he said he was and is and that he's the son of God, that he's our Lord and Savior, that he's alive. And again, as A.W. Tozer puts it, if he's alive, then we've got to do something about him. It seems simple, but here's the catch. What we believe in, we center our lives around. We all have faith in someone or something, and everything that we are and do is a result of what we believe. Our behaviors are the tangible expression of our beliefs. If Jesus is alive, then you've got to do something about him. In this seemingly simple response, Jesus calls people to reprioritize their lives. He's calling us to re rearrange our lives around him. And wouldn't it be easier if he just gave us a list? A checklist? Absolutely. For those of us in relationships and marriages, imagine it was as simple as a checklist of do the dishes, fold the laundry, take care of the bills, pick up the dog poop in the backyard. The thing is, these tasks don't make a relationship. But if you focus on the relationship, the tasks will naturally get done. In fact, did you know the divorce rate in empty nesters has gone from one in 10 to one in four over the past few years? It's been called the 25-year itch. And I believe what's happening in this case is we're focusing so much of our energy on our kids and on the tasks that need to get done around the house and, and on on everything else but the relationship. But it's the relationship that matters, and that's what Jesus is reminding us. Is that Jesus is calling us to believe in him, knowing full well that as we place our full trust in him, as we arrange our lives around him, our lives will be transformed. Our old lives will be made new. The power of sin that once controlled us is destroyed and his kingdom will be made known in our world. If your faith is in Jesus, your sins, past, present, and future, have been terminated through his death. 
Our sins have been removed and sin has no power over us. This is resurrection power and it's available to each and every one of us. Paul writes to the Romans, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. The gospel is the good news of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who is king. The gospel saves and brings God's rule, his kingdom, into our lives in order to bring the good news of his power into the world. The gospel transforms us. The gospel changes us from the inside out and spreads through our lives and lips to the world by his spirit. And I got an email from one of my favorite authors this morning, Sarah Bessie, and she writes this about resurrection. She wrote, the resurrection isn't an add-on to what we already have, a renovation of what already exists. No, resurrection is a whole new ground beneath our feet. It's new air to breathe, it's new eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to dance and hearts to understand. So this Easter, as we celebrate the triumph of the resurrection, I leave you with the question, do you believe? Do you believe in the one God sent? Do you believe in Jesus?